Welcome to Murder Most Foul, a podcast devoted to exploring famous murder cases of our time. Some solved, some unsolved, but all fascinating and guaranteed to raise the hairs on the back of your neck. I'm your host, Jim Solonowski. Today's episode... Who murdered JFK? November 22nd, 1963. President John F. Kennedy was assassinated in Dallas. Most of us boomers know exactly where we were when we heard the news. the world turns. And I gave it a great deal of thought, Grandpa. Here is a bulletin from CBS News. From Dallas, Texas, the flash, apparently official, President Kennedy died at 1 p.m. Central Standard Time, 2 o'clock Eastern Standard Time, some 38 minutes ago. Vice President Lyndon Johnson <clears throat> has left the hospital in uh, Dallas, but we do not know uh, to where he has proceeded. Uh, presumably, he will be taking the oath of office shortly and become uh, the 36th President of the United States. The feeling of shock was palpable. The sadness, indescribable. The reality was undisputed. But was it? From the very beginning, conspiracy theories would be postulated. Some might be considered plausible, but most outlandish. Sadly, over 57 years later, the case is still not settled. I'm sorry, I can't go through with this because I can't get it off my mind, Allison. It's obsessing me. Oh, I'm getting tired of it. I need your attention. But it, it, it doesn't make any sense. He drove past the book depository, and the police said conclusively that it was an exit wound. So how is it possible for Oswald to have fired from two angles at once? It doesn't make sense. Howdy. I'll tell you this. He was not marksman enough to hit a moving target at that range. But... <clears throat> if there was a second assassin, it, that's it. We've been through this. They, they, they recovered through the shells from that rifle. Okay. All right, then what are you saying now? That everybody uh, on the Warren Commission is in on this conspiracy, right? Well, why not? Yeah, Earl Warren. Hey, honey, I don't know Earl Warren. Lyndon Johnson. Lyndon, jo Lyndon Johnson is a politician. You know the ethics those guys have. It's like a, a notch underneath child molester. Then everybody's in on the conspiracy. The FBI and the CIA and J. Edgar Hoover and oil companies and the Pentagon and the men's room attendant at the White House. Oh, I, I would leave out the men's room attendant. So, who do you think murdered JFK? My guest today has some strong opinions on the subject. Gerald Posner is the author of Cold Case. Lee Harvey Oswald and the Assassination of JFK. This exhaustively researched book was a New York Times bestseller 
and was a Pulitzer Prize finalist for 1994. In 2015, the Chicago Tribune called Posner a merciless pit bull of an investigator. Author and journalist Gerald Posner is my guest today for this segment of Murder Most Foul and joins me from an undisclosed location via Zoom. Welcome, Gerald. Great to be with you, Jim. Now, you've uh, written several books, uh, which we're certainly going to let my listeners know about later on. But the one we're talking about today is called Case Closed, Lee Harvey Oswald and the Assassination of JFK. Um, We can probably just end this podcast here, depending on your answer to this question. Now, was Oswald the lone gunman? and had no assistance from enemies of the U.S., foreign or domestic? That's the question. Well, the simple answer to that is yes, Oswald was alone. He killed Kennedy on his own without assistance from any enemies of the U.S. The tougher question is always, even if you come to that conclusion, which a lot of people disagree with me on, but if the credible and overwhelming evidence says Oswald was the only shooter at Didi Plaza that day, then the tough part is figuring out, did he do it for himself and his own warped motivations, or did he do it for somebody else, some group that may have hated Kennedy, some group that had a conspiracy going and they made Oswald part of it. And, and in the end, I conclude he did it on his own. But that's always the tougher part for me of the equation than actually figuring out who did the shooting. The worst thing I hear from people is, we'll never know the truth. That's wrong. There is a historical truth to what happened in the assassination of John Kennedy. Either he was killed by Lee Oswald acting alone, or he was killed by part of a conspiracy, if you believe it, with multiple shooters or somebody on the grassy knoll. There, isn't a, there is a truth to that. Now, are you going to answer every question to 100% certainty so that you walk away and say, that's it? No. What you do as a researcher or investigator is you weigh the credible evidence. You look at what the sort of advancements have been in terms of science and ballistics and everything else that could be done in my case 30 years after the assassination versus what they did in 1964 when the FBI and others were looking at ballistics and that and the the people sometimes say to me Jim okay what's the one thing the one thing that you know they think is going to be the the so-called magic bullet uh, or something like that I'm going to say they say what's the one thing that uh, shows it was Oswald alone my answer is an unsatisfying one for them if they, if they haven't read the book, and that is Oswald himself. That's why a third of the book or more is a biography of Oswald. You get to know him, and once you get to know this 24-year-old kid, that's how it, people forget how young he was. He was just turned 24 the month before. He's 23, turned 24. This socially disturbed young character, you get to, into his mind, you realize why nobody would have involved him in a plot because he was so unreliable. Now, the, the thing is, people think that if I conclude that Oswald alone killed Kennedy, that I'm saying there were no conspiracies against Jack Kennedy, and I'm not saying that. I believe that there were groups of people who wanted the president dead. There could have been mobsters. You could bring me a tape recording tomorrow of a group of mobsters sitting around a table saying, we're going to get that no good president. That was a real conspiracy in the planning. Maybe the same thing was being said by the KGB agents or people in in Havana who were trying to stop the CIA from attempting to kill Castro or others. But the question is, if the same thing today, if we had a president assassinated, there would be a list of suspect groups that might be behind the assassination. 
the question is always tying the shooter into one of those groups. And in this case, what I say is that Oswald beat all of the conspirators who wanted Kennedy dead. He beat them there by doing it himself. They would have pinned the medal on him, but the fact that he did it, people assumed that he was acting for one of those conspiracies that wanted Kennedy dead, and that's not the case. Uh, he, was, uh, he was on his own. The conspiracies were there, but they never pulled off the assassination. Now, as you as you mentioned, uh, the a, a good third of the book in the beginning is uh, uh, devoted to a background on Oswald and uh, many things that I don't think mo most of us knew about him. Um, but let's leave that for a little bit later, because most uh, conspiracies um, center around the ballistics and the science and the sound of that day and the witnesses. Uh, so why don't we take some time on that, because you did quite a bit of research on that as well. And let's start with, like, number of shots. Um, one of the things that I did not know, I uh, just missed it somehow, was that one of the shots fired missed. He missed, so three shots were fired. And, you know, the... There are, the Warren Commission did a great job in a short amount of time under a tremendous amount of pressure. They came to the right conclusion in my mind, but I disagree with the Warren Commission based upon advances in science and ballistics. And here's where the disagreement is. It's about the shooting sequence. The Warren Commission also said that there was a missed shot. They believed that that missed shot was in fact the second shot. So they think that Oswald fired once and hit Kennedy and then Governor Comey sitting in front of him, the so-called Oliver Stone magic bullet, it does somersaults in the air, hesitates for a few minutes, does a tango dance, and then finally goes on and hits the governor. It requires no magic at all, as we show very, you know, in the book, but that's a separate question. And then the second shot misses, according to the commission, and the third shot's the fatal headshot that, that kills the president. That sequence gives Oswald about five and a half seconds to, uh, to get all three shots off. Now it can be done, it's been repeated by firearms experts time and time again, but it turns out that Oswald, and, and I believe that the latest evidence shows it's the first shot that actually missed, and he, it was fired earlier than the Warren Commission thought. Based upon looking at the Zapruder film, the home movie of the assassination, you can see responses on the film to that first sound coming out. After the car, the motorcade has just turned the corner in front of Oswald's window, it's the sharpest angle. There's a tree a little bit blocking some of the view. He takes that shot, and when he does, at around frames 160, 161, the movie of the assassination is a time clock for the assassination because it's 18.3 frames a second, so we can know where it's being timed. That shot is the most difficult in terms of the angle. You can see Mrs. Kennedy looking around, Jack Kennedy, the governor starts to look around, a little girl running on the side, Rosemary Willis, starts to turn around and look up toward the depository where Oswald was last, last left on the sixth floor by three of his co-workers a half an hour before the motorcade comes by. And if that's the first shot, and the third shot, we know where that is because you can see the cloud of blood and brain matter coming out of the present of frame 313, it's about 11 seconds, a little over 11 seconds. And you have to remember, the first, the bullet is in the chamber. It's in the bolt. So you start the clock running when the first shot is fired. Now, that means you have three and a half seconds until he recocks the bolt, 
aims again, fires, that's the non-lethal shot. It's the one that's the so-called magic bullet that is Kennedy. After that, Jim, he has a full five seconds. This is interesting. The, the driver of the, uh, of the motorcade, who was the oldest member of the security detail that day, William Greer, 52 years old, he testified to the Warren Commission that after the first shot, he heard the noise, he knew it was a rifle shot, he turned around and looked at the president. The president, he could tell, was in some distress. He turned back around and he hit the gas pedal and was zooming out of Dealey Plaza when he heard this terrible sound that turned out to be the headshot. Now, that's how he remembered it, but it turns out not to be true. The film doesn't lie. The first shot, he doesn't respond. The second shot, he turns around and looks at the president, and he slows the motorcade up. It was going only about 15 miles an hour. Now it's going 7 to 10 miles an hour. The president is, is sitting there, wounded from the second shot. He's in a back brace. We often forget about that. So he doesn't fall down into the seat. Mrs. Kennedy's looking at him. His head's lolled a little bit to the left. Oswald has a full five seconds to take that shot. It looks like it's 25 yards away in terms of the four power scope on his rifle. He takes it and he almost misses. An inch and a half higher, it's a, it's a, it's a missed as a shot and it's a failed assassination like Reagan who lives by an inch when Hinckley tries to kill him. But unfortunately he catches the president in the high rear portion of the head. It's a deadly and fatal shot. And that's the seating, sort of shooting sequence at Dealey Plaza that takes place. What's undeniable, in, in my view, is that the ballistics evidence and the sound material and the witnesses in the Zapruder film show that the only person shooting that day in Dealey Plaza who hit anybody was in the general vicinity of the fifth to sixth floor of the Texas School Book Depository where Oswald had been left on his own by his co-workers. If there were three or four other assassins firing from the grassy knoll or wherever else that day, they all missed. They didn't hit anything. They didn't hit the car. They didn't hit bystanders. They didn't hit Mrs. Kennedy or Kennedy or governor or anybody. So the assassin was in the rear where Oswald was. And then when you look at the evidence of who it was, that's why I conclude based upon fingerprints and his rifle and where he was left, that it's Oswald who did it. Now, you, you bring up the Zapruder film, which we've all seen over and over again. Uh, as far as I'm concerned, it's the, the real only unassailable eyewitness that day. But of course, as we know, there were uh, people uh, watching and, and they were interviewed at the time. They were interviewed uh, years later for books and documentaries. But uh, it is always, I've always heard that an eyewitness testimony is probably the most unreliable. Um, so again, these people who are sure that they heard four shots, eight shots, um, it has to be taken with a grain of salt. Yeah, you know, it's very interesting you say that because, I mean, you said before when you were 12, you had a, a distinct memory of the assassination that day. I was in fourth grade. Um, I, I came, it was growing up in an Italian Catholic family, of part Jewish, half Jewish, half Italian Catholic, but it was a big deal to my grandmother and grandparents that the first Catholic president was in. I was at a Catholic school with nuns, and I have vivid recollections of that day, what happened, the children around me, our parents picking up. Now, I'd love to have a video of that, because I wonder how close I am to being accurate. I'm convinced I'm telling the truth. And one of the things we know about this, there was a fabulous study done about memory and what they call flashbulb events. 
flashbulb events are a traumatic event, like the, you're out there seeing the president suddenly shots ring out. You're there and a bomb explodes, like in the Boston bombing or things like this. It's like a flashbulb goes off in your brain. They went after the challenger and they took about 300 students at the University of Wisconsin and they asked them, where were you when you heard about the explosion? Who told you about it and, and what time? They went back to them three years later and they asked them the same questions. Now, it's not surprising that about half of them gave a different answer on one of the other issues. Here's the part that's fascinating when it comes to the Kennedy assassination or anything to do with memory. When shown their original statements, about 40% of those with a different answer said, oh, no, I had to be wrong with what I told you originally because I know this is what happened. Now, what's interesting about that is, what's, what's interesting about that is you have a flashbulb event like the Kennedy assassination. Then over time, you, your memory starts to lose little bits of information, but you read accounts you watch documentaries, you read books, you talk to other witnesses, you see TV specials, it fills in parts of your memory, and you could pass a lie detector test about the accuracy of what you say happened. So when I see witnesses whose accounts have gotten fuller over time, they've gotten, uh, they now see assassins running where they didn't see anybody when they were interviewed that day, you've got to give me a very good reason as to why your memory got better in the intervening years than got worse. And unless you have that reason, then I'm not going to give it much credibility. And, and that's the thing. I think that people who go out to prove a thesis. So, you know, when I started this book, I thought maybe the mafia had killed him because Jack Ruby's murder of Oswald seemed to me like maybe a mob silencing. But I was open to following the evidence and ended up with Oswald alone and Ruby doing it on his own. Now, if you start out with a theory that says, I think the mafia did it, or I think the CIA did it, or Castro did it, then you just go on and you look for those witnesses and evidence that support your theory, and that's how you put the book together. That's not following the, the evidence. So unfortunately, there's a, there's a witness out there for everything you want to say in the Kennedy assassination. The question is which ones are credible. And back to our eyewitness for a moment, the Zapruder film. One of the things that uh, most uh, conspiracy people will point to on the film, whether it's in full time, slow motion or, or frame by frame, is the, it, the fact that the kill shot that hit President Kennedy in the head uh, and the lurch of the head afterwards seems to, for them, say it has to be a shooter from the front. And since Oswald couldn't be in both places, obviously it would have to be a multiple shooter. And the, of course, the issue is the head lurch, which it seems his head seems to go backward, which is counterintuitive to us, you know, normal people that uh, a shot from the back would cause his head to go backward. Absolutely. I think that, you know, it, it defies common sense not to think that the first time we as lay people we aren't involved with guns, we're not shooters, we're not um, army snipers and all of this. We watch the Zapruder film, you slow it down, you see the shot take place, the fatal headshot, and the president's head appears to move back and to the left. And so to all of us, including me, when I first saw the Zapruder film, I thought it was shot from the front because I've seen enough gun smoke and Paladin and everything else and all these shows. Somebody's shot from the front, they fall over backwards. They fall the opposite way from the bullet. So the, that has to be the way it is. It's only when you start to then, as a researcher, investigator, study ballistics and get in and ask the experts, and they explain to you that what actually happens in terms of that. Oswald was using, you know, yes, 
it was a mediocre rifle in terms that there were better rifles, but it was a good killing machine. It was an army rifle, an Italian army carbine that fired a fully jacketed metal bullet at nearly 2,000 feet a second. And on the straight fly, it's a, when that bullet hits you, the, it hits Kennedy in the high right rear portion of the head. It comes in at about 16 to 1,700 feet a second. That's a velocity that causes, according to a Nobel Prize winning physicist, Louis Alvarez, what he calls the jet effect, which means this. Bullet enters, frame 312, 313. When it blows out the front right of the head, you see on the film as you slow it up, there's a mist, a pink mist in front of the president. That's it's gross, it sounds gross to say, but it's blood and brain matter. And the force of that explosion, the force of him losing about 30% of his brain as it comes out the front of the head, forces him in the opposite direction, which is to the left and the rear, which is exactly what the experts expect. So when they watch the film in slow motion or frame by frame, as opposed to our reaction, which is he shot from the front, they say, oh, he was shot from the back from a high-powered weapon because that's his reverse motion. And what's interesting about that is there are two motorcycle policemen, Dallas policemen, riding to the rear of the, the motorcade, rear of the, the limousine. They're also in front. The two in the rear were splattered with brain and blood matter. And many years, for many years, people said, well, that's proof Kennedy was shot from the front because he's hit from the front, the back of his head must have blown out, and those guys riding behind him were hit on each side. If you slow the film up, you see them in frames 314, 315, 316, a third of a second after, as their bikes are moving forward, they drive right into the mist that comes out of Kennedy's head from that rear shot. So what looks like a shot from the front turns out to be a shot from the rear in terms of what ballistics and, and medical experts uh, uh, concur with. And um, also when conspiracy theorists can't uh, dispute what they're seeing with their own eyes, like photos or x-rays from the autopsy. Their only option is to say, well, well, of course, they were faked. For years, one of the mistakes I think the Warren Commission made is that they locked a lot of documents up, including the autopsy report, in part because the Kennedy family didn't want it out, right? and they deferred to them. That's unfortunate because the autopsy, although the autopsy was not the best in the world, at least we have the x-rays and the photos which show you exactly where the wounds are. And you can see on that the entrance wound in the rear of Kennedy's head. So conclusive is that information, in my view, you ask what's the best evidence, that some conspiracy theorists know that and have now gotten to the point where they say, well, those must have been faked. They must have been tampered with. Yes, the x-rays and the photos do show that Kennedy wasn't hit from the front, that the wound was in the rear and the big gaping wound is in the front, but that's because those are faked as well. So the conspiracy keeps enlarging from five people to a dozen people to a hundred people to 200 people to different groups of the U.S. government. And in the end, you know, it becomes farcical. As you mentioned, um, someone who has a conspiracy or thinks things went a more uh, sinister way, at times they've got to either mush the evidence to fit that or even go looking for some other uh, possibility to support their hypothesis. Um, one such folk is uh, David Lip Lifton, and uh, he sort of his idea is that there was autopsy finagling and um, how these um, unidentified conspirators uh, finagled that is that there were duplicate um, coffins and to, to sort of hide where the body was at any given time. Am I getting that right? 
the David Lifton happens to be somebody that I get along with. He wrote a book called Best Evidence, and believe it or not, that we have diametrically opposed views of the assassination. I talk to David, he can talk to me. We, we don't get into name calling. Um, he doesn't think I'm part of the conspiracy to cover up the assassination and work for the CIA. And I don't think that he's a terrible fellow. I just think he's wrong. And here's a perfect example. When you talk about what should you as a researcher do in terms of evidence. So David Lifton comes across a point where at Bethesda, where Kennedy's body has been taken because Mrs. Kennedy asked for it to be taken there when she was asked because he was a Navy man. She thought Bethesda would be the right place for the autopsy to be done. He gets to Bethesda and a person working as an orderly inside Bethesda happens to see what he thinks is a wooden coffin. The president had this bronze coffin. So Lifton says, my God, two coffins. That means they must have switched the body. They must have done this and that. I would say, not this, I would say two coffins. That's two eyewitness accounts. Which one's right? So the purpose for me is uh, conspiracy theorists often accept every witness is telling the truth. They say this one's right who says six shots and this one's right who says two shots and that one's right who says grassy knoll. This one's right who says two coffins. What I know as a lawyer in another life, I was a lawyer early on before I started to write, is if you have, like you said, an auto accident at a corner with six people, one will say the car was dark blue and one will say it's gray and one will say two people on the front and one will say no, it was the wife who was driving. Witnesses vary. So the fact that a witness would describe the coffin different doesn't seem odd to me. The question is why? What did other witnesses see? So you could resolve that issue. What's the best evidence here? But instead of doing that, Lifton went off on a wild theory. And I must say, think of this. Why does David Lifton have to go through a theory that says the body was switched, they did surgery on the president to make it look as if he was shot from the rear? Because he knows in his heart that the only evidence is that the president was shot from behind, where Oswald was. So now he's come up with a theory to say he was really shot from the front, but they did surgery to hide all of that. And here's what I call the common sense question. Let's say that you and me, Jim, are sitting around planning to kill the president. We're, we're in the CIA or whatever. We're plotting to kill Kennedy that day. Now, we've pulled off the perfect crime, because here we are almost 60 years later, no one's really uncovered what happened. Fine. But what we say is, you know what? Let's, let's, let's get that guy Oswald set up for the crime. So we'll set a world-class assassin up to shoot the president from the front, the grassy knoll. And then afterwards, we'll somehow steal the body while it's on the plane back to Washington. We'll do surgery, make it look like Oswald shot him. Wouldn't you say to me, Joe, that's the craziest idea I ever heard. Why don't we just put the world-class assassin somewhere behind the president on the fifth floor, fourth floor of the depository or another building, shoot the president from behind, then you don't have to do all this surgery and stealing of the body and everything else. We can still set up Oswald. So even if you were doing a plot, the idea of this great you know, theft and surgery and everything else makes no sense, but it became a bestseller. People love conspiracy theories, and sometimes the more convoluted, the more they love them. I noticed uh, in, in Wikipedia they have an entry, um, and I'll just read from it. Coinciding with the 50th anniversary of the assassination in 2013, Gallup released a national poll showing that while a majority, 61% of Americans still believed a conspiracy was behind JFK's death, the number of those who thought it was a lone assassin 30% was the highest in 46 years. Uh, boy, that still doesn't sound like, um, you know, very encouraging uh, based on, on your book. You may find this odd. I don't know. Many of your listeners may find it odd. 
I thought that was fantastic news in this sense. I was accustomed after the, you know, 1993 when I published on the 30th anniversary and after the Stone film in 91 on JFK, you know, good film, bad history, I think it was 85 or 90%, over 90% thought it was a conspiracy. You were, when we published, we meaning Random House published my book in 93 that said Oswald did it. On the 30th anniversary, we were the only one of more than a dozen books that thought it was Oswald. And we thought nobody would be interested. That people who thought it was Oswald alone would say, I don't need to read a book. And people who thought it was a conspiracy would say, oh, that's a crazy theory. What we didn't realize is that after 30 years, the craziest thing was to say, I think Oswald alone killed him. People said, what? You're, you're kidding. How could you possibly say that? That's how far away it had moved off the discussion. So the fact that nearly a third of Americans on the 50th had come around to thinking that it was Oswald alone, that's, that's progress. We're moving in the right direction. But you know, something you just mentioned, by the way, uh, not to take you further down this uh, uh, divergent path, but what you said is, I think it's one of the reasons that this assassination holds such a hold on for so many of us, uh, especially those of us who have some recollection of it as kids, uh, an entire generation. But it's the first assassination or murder on film. The Zapruder film means we see it in a different way than, than Garfield or Lincoln or something else that had taken place before. And, you know, that day when the car turns the corner and Mrs. Kennedy is sitting in that pink Chanel suit and she didn't travel that often with him and there's, there's the president. John Connolly looks like he's out of, you know, Hollywood casting as a Texas governor of the big 10-gallon ga uh, Stetson in that, and the, the open convertible. And then the assassination of the assassin, the murder of the assassin, is on film as well with a fellow who looks like he's out of central casting as a wannabe mobster. So you can't make this up. If neither of the, if the Zapruder film and the TV had not been live on those two events, it's not that we wouldn't have the same fascination about the case, but it would be different. We're able to see it play out in front of our eyes, and many of us experienced it live, and we'll never forget that. Another um, tool in the conspirators' toolbox is um, the pristine bullet, this uh, bullet that magically appeared on a stretcher uh, at Parkland Hospital that was um, described as pristine, uh, with no blood on it, so it probably they thought it was not uh, part of the assassination, and yet um, because it was ballistically then tested, so it did come from Oswald's gun, but it must have been planted on the stretcher to incriminate him. So, uh, what what where what is your take on uh, this uh, planted bullet? That's the bullet that's fired by Oswald at about two thousand feet a second. Hits Kennedy up here. 15 to 1600 feet. When I say up here, for those who are only listening on audio, of course, I'm referring to the high right rear, under the neck, high shoulder area. Doesn't hit any bone, goes straight through the president, through his neck. And it then goes to the governor, who is sitting a little bit lower in the car. The governor started to turn around to look back to the president because he's heard the first shot and he wanted to see what's going on. He's holding his, his hat, his Stetson hat in his right hand. And at the moment when he is partially turned around, the bullet goes straight out of Kennedy in a straight line, no zigs, no zags, no hesitation, hits the governor in his, in, near his shoulder blade, and the bullet is tumbling at that point. How do I know that? 
because the entrance wound in the colony is about an inch and a quarter long, exactly the length of the bullet. The bullet hits him on the side as it's coming in. The first time it hits bone is when it hits a lower rib on Connolly before it exits under his nipple. At that point, it's moving at about nine, about 1,200 feet a second, enough to break the rib and not demolish the bullet. It hits the governor's wrist, which is bone here that it comes through at about 900 feet a second. And that, again, breaks the wrist. It flattens the bullet a little bit, but doesn't destroy it. And then it plops into what I call the governor's thigh at about 400 feet a second, just enough to penetrate into the skin, but not deep enough so that it's really inside his leg. That's the bullet that pops out when the governor is on that stretcher at Parkland and found. And it's referred to, by the way, by conspiracy theorists as nearly pristine. Now, I've examined the actual bullet of the National Archives. I got special permission to do that at one point. Calling it nearly pristine is like saying you're nearly pregnant. You're either pregnant or you're not. The bullet's either pristine or it's not. It's not pristine. It's flattened on one side. You can see this, that it's been fired in earth, but it's not in terrible shape. And the mistake the Warren Commission made is they took the equivalent of Oswald's gun and they fired full bullets into pig carcasses and others, and goats, and the bullet came out terribly mangled. So they said, well, how could you fire it? It hits one person and it's all mangled. And this bullet hit two people, went through all these different things and it's not mangled. It took ballistics and forensics people nearly 30 years to come up with a solution to realize the bullet slowed up as it hit each of those people at different points when it doesn't hit the bone until a stage where it's moving at a slower speed. And that's not just a theory. They have Jim recreated that now with the equivalent of two figures that look like Kennedy and Connolly, the same size, same weight. Uh, they've mocked them up as corpses. They've driven the car through. They fired the bullet at the same positions they were in the Zapruder film. And I have a reproduction in the book. That bullet can be reproduced all day long, inflicting the same wounds it did on those two men as it did on November 22nd, 63, and come out essentially in the same condition. So let's turn to the shooter. You are as certain that it was Lee Harvey Oswald and that he acted alone as you are of the science. So let's, um, let's talk a little bit about Lee Harvey Oswald, the man. Yeah, I think, you know, the amazing thing about uh, Lee Oswald is uh, he's a troubled kid from the earliest age. Growing up with his uh, mother, he's uh, growing up in a household, he's not very happy, he gets to New York City, his mother takes him up there at a point. Um, it, it, he's examined. It's one of the few instances in which we've had a person who later becomes an assassin examined as a teenager by a psychiatrist because he's sent to this truancy home. And the psychiatrist remembered him years later. Hartogs is the name of the psychiatrist. Not because he had some fantastic memory, but because Oswald stood out to him because he was there on a mild charge, truancy, not going to school. But when he tested him, he found he had these uh, potential for aggressive acting out, dangerous aggressiveness. It's the psychiatric report from that time is really fascinating. And here's young Lee Oswald unsettled about what he's going to do. He goes in the Marine Corps, not because he thinks the Marines are great, but because his older brother did, and he, he's following him. The Marine Corps, he thinks he's gonna turn him around. It's an unmitigated disaster. The Marines think he might be gay. They throw him in the shower. They call him Mrs. Oswald. They tease him. And, and his take is that he's eventually going to show them what this is all about. He's decided that the real 
truth is to be found in the communist revolution that took place in the Soviet Union. And he's going to defect there when he gets out of the Marines. And when he gets to the Soviet Union in the middle of the Cold War, you're a hero. Thanks for defecting. And he's going to be treated as he should be. He gets over to Russia when he defects. And guess what? In 59, they say, get lost. We don't want you. You've got to go home. He's so destroyed, he tries to kill himself. They find him before he dies. And they send him out to a provincial capital in Minsk where he marries a young Russian girl. And in a year and a half, this guy who's never happy with anything is unhappy with the Soviet Union and asked to come back. Goes through the long process of repatriation, which some other defectors did as well. And when he gets back to the U.S., this is somebody who really is, has sort of a pox on both your houses. He doesn't like Russia. He doesn't like the U.S. And what does he do? Not only does he abuse and batter Marina, who's his Russian-born wife, but in April of 63, decides he's going to put himself in the history books by assassination. No, it's not Jack Kennedy. It's a guy that many people may not even have heard of. Edwin Walker, right-wing sort of army general, was running for the governorship of Texas, who Oswald thought was going to be the next Hitler. And he fails to kill him when the bullet shot deflects on a window frame and just misses Walker's head. Marina is so afraid of him going back to kill Walker, she makes him move to New Orleans, where Oswald was born, so they get away from Dallas. And in New Orleans, in the sweltering heat, Jim, of 1963, Lee Oswald decides that the new revolution in Cuba, that's where it really is. Castro's doing it right. So he forms a pro-Castro group. And in that pro-Castro group, he stands on the street corners, the sweltering heat, giving out leaflets. He prints up with the little money that he has to get people to join his organization, Fair Right for Cuba. And you know how many people he got? Zero. He's failed again in another thing. So now he tells Marina in the late summer of 63, I'm going to go down to Havana and you are too. I'm going to go to Mexico City and get the visas to go. That's where we're moving. We're going to move there. And on September 25th, when he leaves New Orleans to go down to Mexico City, guess what happens? That night while he's on a bus, it takes overnight to get on the bus, the White House releases for the first time its information that Jack Kennedy will visit Dallas in November. So nobody even knew it beforehand. So if you want to have a conspiracy with Oswald and Kennedy in Dallas, somebody better bring Oswald in after September 25th. Oswald goes down to Mexico City, goes to the Cuban mission, the Soviet mission, twice to the Soviet mission. They don't give him the visa. He comes back in, in October to Dallas, a beaten man. He has just been turned down from the one place that he thought might give him some, afford him some hope for the future. He lands a job through a friend of Marina. They're separated at the time at the Dallas School Book Depository. And that's where the motorcade of the president is set weeks later to go by. In my view of Oswald, I know you've read the book, and some people may find this surprising. The Lee Harvey Oswald that I came to understand, Kennedy was a target of opportunity. And what I mean by that is he was ready to kill Walker. That was his contribution to history. Now he has a chance to kill the president of the United States. It wasn't as like Sirhan Sirhan with Bobby Kennedy, where he was writing in a book, I hate the president, I hate the president, I hate the president, I've got to kill him, and was obsessed with that. He was looking to throw a cog into the machinery of government. His politics weren't just leftist politics, there were a bit of anarchy built in. The Oswald that I came to understand could have been on the sixth floor of a building in downtown Moscow shooting at Nikita Khrushchev on that day. He was ready to strike out against the system. And Kennedy becomes that opportunity for him. It's just the perfect storm. Everything lines up right, unfortunately.
in the end, I think a lot of us uh, w sort of wanted it to be a, a conspiracy because um, the thought of a, a lone crackpot, um, misguided gunman with no help from anyone could assassinate a beloved president like John F. Kennedy is beyond belief. You're right. A conspiracy would somehow make us feel better. William Manchester wrote the great book, The Death of a President, said it best. He said, if you look at World War II, on the one side of the equation, you have the Holocaust, six million dead Jewish victims and millions of others who were gypsies and Russian prisoners and everybody else. On the other side of the equation, you have the Nazis. So worse crime, worse criminals. It, they balance each other. In the Kennedy assassination, you have this young, charismatic president with so much potential for the future, Camelot. On the other side of the equation, you have this 24-year-old loser sociopath in life with a cheap rifle and, and Oswald, and it doesn't balance. You want to put something heavier on the Oswald side. So if you put the CIA or the FBI or Castro, it makes you feel as though Kennedy didn't die for nothing. There was some reason behind his death. And we, and we also are suspicious because as a generation, we grew up into the lies of Vietnam. We knew that they exaggerated the numbers about body counts. We saw Iran-Contra. So there are government conspiracies at times. We became suspicious about whether the FBI and the CIA had a cover-up to the Warren Commission. In fact, as I write about, they did. But it wasn't a cover-up of a murder. The CIA was trying to hide the fact that they were trying to kill Castro. And the FBI was afraid that someone would ask them, why didn't you know Oswald might try to kill the president since you were investigating him? So there are all types of reasons why you might believe there's a conspiracy here or want to believe it. It would be more satisfying for some people. Uh, but I tell you that in the end, the facts are the facts. You've, and, and if they tell you what they are, it, you can't change them just because it would make you feel better. Well, my friend, according to the Zoom clock on the wall, it's time to say goodbye. I don't know if we've changed any minds today, but I hope my listeners have been enlightened and entertained. I know I have. The book is Case Closed, Lee Harvey Oswald and the Assassination of JFK. It was a New York Times bestseller and a finalist for a Pulitzer Prize for History in 1994. Mr. Posner's website is www.posner.com. I want to personally thank Mr. Posner for taking the time today to appear on Murder Most Foul. Thank you very much, Jim. Thank you for a great conversation.